Warning, it is not enough to desire something. If one really wants it, adequate means must be used to secure it. And these means are not arbitrary, but cannot be but conditioned by the ends we aspire to. If we ignore the choice of means, we would achieve other ends, possibly diametrically opposed to those we aspire to. And this would be the obvious inevitable consequence of our choice of means. Whoever sets out on the high road and takes a wrong turn does not go where he intends to go, but where the road leads him. And that was a quote from Malatesta. Welcome to the show, everybody. Are you serious? Today's episode of Seriously Wrong is brought to you by Achieving Social Change by Prefiguring That Change in the Here and Now. Hi, my name is Dr. Prefigerson, PhD. If we want to build the new in the shell of the old, build a world where many worlds exist, where the rulership of kings and statesmen is abolished in favor of a free associated commune of communes where people's needs are always met, we just can't rely on the janky old political forms of our inherited hierarchical society. Oh, but I thought inverting the power structure of the current state would give us an expedited road to radical social change. No, that's wrong. It actually infects the revolutionary movement with the self-perpetuating logic and interests of the current state of things, turning it into a type of zombie, hollowing out its potential from the inside and creates an elite strata whose interests actually align with the powers that be in this sort of paradoxical way where the authorities of the current way of things and the counter-authorities that ostensibly challenge them have a shared interest in promoting a mutual suppression of revolutionary values on both sides and an eventual conflict where might makes right and the cruelest powers win. Damn, that sounds bleak as hell. Maybe we should just give up. No, no, okay, no need to give up. In fact, just the opposite. Our responsibility is clarified by this. We have a responsibility to build in the here and now, the institutions, spaces, and cultures that would typify the society that we want to create to the highest degree possible. Okay, well, is, is there an Ikea-like blueprint that I can use to piece it together? Or is there like a leader that I should be following? No, well, not really. Well, we'll put some links in the description that can give you some ideas of where to start and some readings, but no, there's no like single blueprint. It's more of an iterative experimental process and we have to come together and it's going to involve figuring out a lot of things on the fly. But isn't that kind of fun? Like, isn't that kind of cool and fun in itself to have that experimental, open-ended and creative process that, that we're all invited to be a part of? <sighs> okay, yeah. That's the spirit. Achieving social change by prefiguring that change in the here and now. Proud sponsor of Seriously Wrong. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Seriously Wrong podcast. We are your hosts, Sean and Aaron. Hello. And today we are joined by a very special guest, Anarch. He makes YouTube video essays on the subject of anarchism. He's here to talk to us about the political concept or strategy called prefiguration. Thanks for being here, Anarch. Glad to be here. 
First, prefiguration is a $5 word, maybe a $10 word. Maybe some people haven't heard it. What is prefiguration? Well, it's most commonly stated in this phrase, building the new in the shell of the old. I tend to think of it as trying to build the vessel that looks the most like our ideal world as possible with what we currently have available. Right. So it's like we have some pretty big aspirations on this show. We talk about what a utopian society would look like, a fully directly democratic society, global confederated commune of communes where needs are met by a system that is dependable for the people who live on this planet and share this biosphere together. And prefiguration is saying, if we want that new thing, we have to build it now in the shell of the old thing. Something we criticized in the show in the past is this idea of revolutionary procrastination being like X issue or Y issue. We'll have to deal with that after the revolution. It's too much to take on all these political things now. So we need to have some sort of revolution now, and then we can figure out the order of society later, figure out how to address all these different issues later. And prefiguration is kind of the alternate theory, the opposite of it, saying that you can't wait until after the revolution to tackle these issues. You need to start addressing them now. And actually through addressing them, that can be a pathway to create a revolutionary society. In many ways, it's a response to the fact that often what would take place is revolutions would be constituted and then still had to administer society, but none of the necessary institutions had been created within the movement to actually do so besides this extremely narrow vanguard, which then made seizing the state a very obvious thing to do. And so they begin to just fill the roles of all of the people they once despised built a copy of the enemy system, hoping that somehow it was going to turn into a revolutionary future. But this strategy says, no, if we seek to take over the administration of society as a mass of people cooperating together, we need to begin building as many of those institutions and organizations as we can now. We can look, for example, at the CNT FAI in Civil War Spain. You might look at that and become really interested in the Civil War aspect. But one thing that interests me about it is that there were like two or three decades of very explicit agitation and construction of these institutions, the expansion of the trade unions and their integration with democratic structures, prefiguring the system which would challenge the system as it stood. This is a lot of what the early process was of them accumulating power. And this is why now we still speak of the CNTFAI and the Spanish Civil War, because that is what they did. And that is what made them so successful. And so what somebody from my perspective would say is, then we need everybody on board on that project of prefiguration. You're almost turning a type of leftist common sense you see on the internet on its head here, in that even in the moment of civil war, where you have a rupture moment, it's not that when a rupture happens, everyone suddenly bolts to figure out how institutions should be structured to fit that moment. It's that the years leading up to the rupture and the decades leading up to the rupture, people are prefiguring organizations, democratic structures, and economic structures that give them the tools that when there is crisis, when there is rupture, and whether that's political crisis, ecological crisis, crises of need, Institutions help people to weather those transitions, and they've built up this capacity, this experiential capacity of being involved with these institutions so that even if there is to be a rupture, there could be a rupture or not in any given pathway towards a better society. But a rupture without the institutions who are ready to tackle it is a bad situation. 
Yeah, it should be noted that the capitalist class came into existence through a kind of prefiguration. They weren't trying to climb through the clergy and feudal lordship ladder in order to institute capitalism from above. They were just a merchant class that arose in these Italian city-states and a variety of other places. There was overlap with the lords, but they began to act out the process of profit accumulation to practice these rituals that we now still use about predicting future earnings and all of this stuff. So if we're looking at the capitalist class, as has been done so much in history, as an example of a revolution that changes the paradigm of the system, then it appears the answer is prefiguration, because that's what they did. They began to accumulate all of these assets. They began to enact all of these wage relations. They began to enact different kinds of ownership of the means of production, maximally within the conditions that they have. They essentially created capitalism by being capitalists before capitalism existed. So that's all prefiguration is telling us to do. It's telling us maximally configure the relations you wish to create in the next society within the one that you have right now and turn that into a vessel to expand and accumulate power for the people instead of this hierarchical system as it stands. If people are going to start doing things in a radically different way, and that's what the goal of a revolution would be, is to change the way society works, you can't just do that all at once. Even if you have your perfect little rule book set of things that you think is how it's going to work, you can't just hand that to everyone and be like, okay, start doing it now. People need experiential knowledge of how democratic meetings work or of how mutual aid organizations work if those are the types of things we want to build the future society on. Experiential knowledge of how to participate in things like this, I think, is a really big part of that so that you know what to do and you can adapt what's already been happening. You can't just start from nowhere or start from the types of institutions in this society and be like, okay, new management in town. We're just changing it over now. It's perfectly democratic, <laughs> mutual aid. Here's your instruction book. It's almost like if you've ever known someone on a personal level, maybe they got a few issues in their life they want to deal with, but they're super convinced. Once I move to this new place, it's all going to be simple. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to be able to do the dishes on time. You know, I've done it too. There's this really tempting psychological urge to be like, oh, after I finish university, I think that's really what I'm going to be tackling these other things. But then in practice, if you want to change your relationship to drugs and alcohol, or you want to exercise more or something like that, the only way to do it is to learn how to start doing it, to start doing it more and more. What you're talking about, Aaron, makes so much sense of like in this political context, people always talk about once you participate in some sort of direct democratic group and you have that experience of collective decision making, there's challenges that come out of it, but there's also euphoric moments. And there's this kinship and connection you start feeling with the other people when you're making collective decisions. Having places where people get these experiences of democratic institutions is going to give them the skill sets and experience that they need to manage the democratic institutions of a democratic society, which we hope to eventually create. Yeah, I agree with that entirely. I think that's a huge part of what it is. And so it's essentially just being entirely consistent to the anarchist unity of means and ends, right? That your right. means and your ends must be aligned in order for you to succeed. There's a lot of justifications for why this is the case, but I think the one we're at now is really the key justification, and that is that people are conditioned by their cycles of actions. 
People are not these closed atoms. They are in feedback with the rest of society perpetually, and they are being formed as society acts back upon them and as their environment changes around them. So when you act in a particular way, the actions that you do, you generally don't want to think are bad things right? You don't want to have this constant feeling of guilt and remorse. Therefore, you tend to justify what you are doing as you act. You're conditioned through acting internally and externally. So what then anarchists have always advocated is that our actions need to create within us that internal conditioning, internal justification system for doing the right actions, for doing the things which could actually achieve our future world. So this is the internal aspect, but there's also an external aspect. That is to say, the structures that we build are also in feedback with the rest of the world. If we build a hierarchical structure, that hierarchical structure is going to impose hierarchical ways of being upon the world that it's in. Those who are inside of it also have this hierarchical way of being imposed on their minds. And therefore, when we build structures, we need to be building structures that will not only make those that are within them assume this new way of thinking, this maybe horizontal or anti-hierarchical way of thinking, but they will also interact with the rest of the world in a way which is consistent with these desires and values. That reminds me of, I read this book by like a specialist in addiction, Anna Lemke recently, and she talks about part of the recovery process for people who are severely addicted to things is committing to honesty to the highest degree possible because being dishonest and covering up your sort of addictive behavior to the people close to you and stuff like that, you're training yourself to be able to justify whatever you just did. And then the justifications can kind of take the reins. And then you can start identifying with the justifications. And there's so many examples of this. I think people get involved in statecraft or being elected in politics, and a lot of them have the most sweetie pie, you know, clean butt, like just looking at the, trying to tackle the world. I'm going to do it right this time. But then they find themselves in this situation where, oh, politicians actually don't write the legislation. Legislation is written by these coalitions of private business interests. I don't actually have any political staff to write my own legislation. And even if I did, I'm in a minority position. It starts sneaking in the various different ways that can justify the choices that they're making. Well, at least we boosted the child tax benefit by $50. I mean, I know that was me, so I should be reelected. There's all of these institutional structural issues in the world of electoral politics that push people in this direction. And I feel like that's a very common sense thing that we can see. You know, even our sort of boomer uncles say all politicians are crooks. Well, that's why. And I think there's science also about how when you're in a position of power, it's harder to empathize with other people. It's harder to respect their point of view. And these same sort of principles apply within, you know, even ostensibly revolutionary organizations. Yeah, it's shocking to find how fast revolutionaries will begin to act precisely like the people they were decrying just a few years previous, as soon as they have themselves become embedded in a hierarchical structure. So essentially what's happening, if you make this mistake, is that you have now, in this one place where rebellion might take place, where actual revolutionary attitudes might grow, you have allowed the enemy system to now colonize this space as well, to now get you to build its structure within the place where you are supposed to be building its negation. So in a way, it's sort of a mode of self-sabotage. It's not utilitarianism, it's quite the opposite. In fact, what ultimately takes place is that what was once a revolution is now aimed towards counter-revolution. 
And the process may not be immediate, but it will take place eventually because you are just using the enemy's tactics. And in time, you will find why the enemy acts the way that they do. And this is not to justify, of course, old conservative tropes about like, you know, well, once you're there, you'll get it. It's more that the reason why once you're there, you'll get it is because the structure is built to condition you into what it needs you to be. And so that's a big part of why means and ends must be unified. The unity of means and ends thing has always been really compelling to me, even before I had been introduced to a lot of these concepts about how a sufficient patchwork of different prefigurative actions could sort of form the training ground of revolutionary citizenship and the citizenship of some future society. On an intuitive level, when you talk about doing something horrible for promise of some sort of eat your vegetables now and get dessert in the end kind of thing, mm. but the vegetables in this case is some sort of inhumane act that would abridge your very humanity by participating. I think it's a very reasonable question that could be shared among both the Albert Einsteins of the world, but also the children of the world would have that question as well, because it seems a little hypocritical and strange. Why would you do something horrible if you like good things? <laughs> and prefiguration is the attempt to say, what does it look like when you lean into trying to create the good things that you want to create? And tensions can erupt from that process. And it's not as straightforward as just being the change you want to see in the world and have that be the one and only step if only we changed our mindset or something like that. But rather that there's a material process of these feedback loops where by participating in these processes towards trying to create the ends that we want to create in ways that are consistent with the means that we're using, making significant progress through our actions towards actualizing the world we actually want to live in. For example, we think it's wrong for children to starve, so we are creating a plan which feeds children. There's no obfuscation, there's no look over here, will I pull something out of your back pocket? No waiting until after the rupture to start doing that or to start creating these institutions. Just pinch your nose for the next decade. And <laughs> <laughs> Today's episode of Seriously Wrong is brought to you by Revolutionary Procrastination. Are you a cool enough, tough enough revolutionary to procrastinate? Yeah, a revolution is a faraway ideal to judge things against while sitting on our hands and going on Twitter.com. Do you feel the constant weight of alienation depriving you of all happiness and fulfillment? Well, just wait until the revolution comes. Then we'll worry about that. You know, I was thinking about getting some therapy because I keep on mistreating the people around me in my life and I'm not very reflective about it. But I was thinking after the revolution, it will be easier then. Yeah, it's just an uphill battle now. Is your water table being poisoned by oil leaks from that new pipeline coming through built by that mega conglomeration that controls the planet? Well, you really shouldn't worry about that. There's no ethical consumption under capitalism, so just pull up to the tap and have your fill. Fixing it now would just prop up the system. Soon the rupture will come. Are your dishes dirty in your sink? Don't clean them. Wait for the rupture. The revolutionary people's dishwashing brigades clean better than you can even imagine under capitalism. I feel the same way about flushing my toilet and cooking dinner after the revolution. Don't wipe your butt. Wait for the revolutionary butt wiping brigades. You'll never have such a spotless hole. People say we have to fix climate change. and say impossible under capitalism. We'll do it after. Look, it's not that it's not important. It's just a little down the list. People say we need to fix racism, sexism, homophobia, ableism. And it's like, those things are all part of capitalism. So just leave them for now to the side. We'll do it after. 
definitely not worth worrying about right now. It's just a distraction. Please, have patience. There will be a more convenient season for all of these things. Once we take the reins of the military and police, once that revolution's done, we promise. Over. Revolution is the point in history when all the bad things change into good things. So, expecting us to address the bad things now is incoherent. Waste of time. Doesn't even make sense. A lot of people, they understand that revolutions are a very short time where a lot of things change, but they have this misconception that it could be as long as an hour or even a minute. But we're here to tell you today that the revolution is a moment. It is the smallest unit of time. It is between 102 and 103 on the clock. It is like, boom, and it's totalizing. And after it is when you can really start addressing things in general. So, as the unstoppable robot overlords enslaving the human race break into our homes and tear apart our families, causing widespread suffering, just remember, the revolution is coming soon, so just hold on, it's okay. Capitalism's failure to deal with this alien invasion is only heightening the contradictions. Have patience, comrade. The dialectics are turning. I hope the dialectics are turning. They are, they are, don't worry. <laughs> Revolutionary procrastination. The only real good way to have revolution. And it's good. Uh, it's good. Seriously Wrong is a big-hearted, above-board, do-gooder show. A research-based utopian comedy podcast that we try to make funny and informative every episode. We love doing Seriously Wrong. It takes a lot of time to research, write, record, and to edit. So if you'd like to be part of supporting independent creators like us to make the best content that we possibly can, your monthly donation of just $6 a month, that sweet six, can make a huge difference. We are an entirely listener-supported show. We turn down offers from advertisers all the time because our listeners are awesome and they're generous in supporting the show, and advertising is a form of mind poison. And that Sweet Six will also get you access to our bonus episodes, a Discord server, we run a listener book club and reading group, reading and discussing theory, and you also get our episodes before anyone else. Your contribution will help keep Seriously Wrong going for a thousand episodes. That's what the projections say that we could get to a thousand episodes and that after a thousand episodes, I don't want to make any promises, but maybe, maybe I will. Maybe I'll just yeah, make, make the, the promise. promise that if we hit 1000 episodes, there will be 10,000 years of world peace. That's just objectively factual. That's like talking to a doctor. Like that's what a high level of epistemology we're dealing with. And that's a promise. That's a guarantee. I guess a question for you, Anarch, what would you see as the main pieces of prefigurative politics through a revolutionary frame? How, how do we begin to construct the prefigurative revolution? Well, in the video I created constructing the revolution, I laid out what I call the four pillars. Councils, economics, defense, and intelligence. These are the four broad categories of prefigurative institutions that I think need to be built. Each of these, of course, contain a huge amount of detail, a huge amount of variability, and there's a lot of different things that could be built within each of them. And I think every project will need all of them in order to succeed, but different projects may emphasize different parts to begin with and as they proceed. And I would just emphasize that any one aspect is most important, it's the councils. 
because the councils are the connection of the democratic will of the people to control of all of these other aspects, which must all be confederated together into this democratic control. So when I say councils, what I'm talking about is building horizontal, directly democratic consensus structures within neighborhoods, city blocks, apartment buildings, whatever the natural grouping of the people of the area is. Putting these together in order to tackle the problems that confront the people there. So for example, Kali Akuno with Cooperation Jackson, he advocates what are called block committees. And a block committee is essentially where what you do is you go to a city block and you try to organize that city block into a sort of democratic form. You know, there's some meeting that takes place, say, every week or every month or something where everybody on that block gets together and makes decisions together. There's probably prefiguration that could not start with it, but I think that it is very important that the democratic aspect is at the core of the whole process. Maybe that's the communalist in me. On the subject of direct democracy and councils, there's a lot of debate on sort of the ideal structure of these organizations and democratic institutions, like, for example, debates over consensus, like pure consensus versus delegation, or how expertise fits into them. What do you see as the goals of democratic councils in terms of structure? I would advocate we use consensus processes, which is to say you try your best to get unanimous consent from everybody involved. That is actually quite achievable when your numbers are relatively small. Even in the hundreds, it can still work pretty well. There are some real world examples. But that being said, there probably will also always have to be some kind of process of like delegation. But what's really important in delegation is that it's not like electing a representative in our system. You know, when I elect a representative, they're in there for two years or four years or whatever, they're in for a term. The chances that any kind of recall election would ever take them out are slim to non-existent. And they not only are given one task, they're just given the task of ruling us, essentially. They're given the task of making all the laws, determining how things proceed, what sort of measures get brought to the floor. There would be nothing like that in the system that's being proposed. Instead, anybody who is like delegated to do a task is delegated to that task. So historically, the language anarchists used to refer to this was a revocable delegate. But they also often talk about how it's temporary and revocable. That is to say, the delegate is given a task. And once that task has been completed, their delegation status is gone. So what this does is it allows these organizations to be flexible, to get things done, to make sure people that have strengths are able to use those strengths, but also such that people that have strengths aren't just given like de facto power over everyone else. So these are just some of the details I would say are very important in the project. One of the arguments that you'd get in this would be around either real or perceived expertise and being like, well, so-and-so is an expert on medical issues. So they're like the medical delegate and then they are the medical leader and that they issue medical commands and that the people who aren't medical leaders uh, don't have a don't have as much of a say or don't have any say in relation to it. So how do we square the circle here on making sure that differences in expertise and ability has weight within the system? I think one of the keys is trying to understand how power is actually oriented here. I would say for a lot of different circumstances, it's really not necessary to delegate that kind of authority to a person. I don't think that we should, of course, like delegate all medical decisions to just automatically be made by the person who has the most medical expertise. But when decisions are being made, 
this person's expertise should be absolutely taken into account. Them simply being able to present their perspective is generally enough to bring the group to consensus around a particular topic. But it may be, for example, that you would want to delegate some medical task. For example, if something goes wrong at one of your events or the council meetings, say somebody starts having a heart attack, you don't need to vote on that at the time. You want to have voted beforehand that that person is given the right to give medical care to the people that are available. And in fact, you might even want to vote beforehand that they're the only person who's allowed to give medical care because you guys could even be under liability if you mess it up really bad, right? So like there are examples where you might want to give somebody some sort of like de facto control over a process. For example, they're a medical professional, let them actually carry out any medical procedure that needs to be done. But when it comes to making decisions where medicine simply bears upon the decision, I'd say it's probably wiser to just have the councils decide on it with the expertise of the medical professional given to them. And that makes me think also of the education component and how to, where there is expertise, have there be a process for other people to be brought up closer to that level of expertise to make sure that information is being diffused among the group that, for example, if we're talking about something like the Heimlich maneuver, that is something that, you know, that's not open heart surgery. That's something that it would be a benefit in helping to have as many people as possible understand how the Heimlich maneuver works. So you don't have to wait for the doctor to come, for example, or in the example you gave of like, it's how I think people would like parody anarchism. It's like, oh my goodness, someone's choking. Okay, let's make a quick meeting, like using like Robert's rules of order or something like, all right, do we have quorum to vote on whether or not? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing. This is this has long been an objection to consensus systems or even systems where a lot of things get voted on is this idea that every single decision needs to be voted on at every single moment. And I would say that that would only happen in a circumstance where the councils, their decisions are not properly broad enough. The decisions that they're making are not preparing for possible circumstances. A group I've been part of, for example, planned a meeting. And during the time they were planning the meeting, they also went about planning what the safety precautions would be for that meeting. Social distancing, asking for vaccinations, having people wear masks, and so on. That gets integrated into the planning process when the proposal is brought. So you wouldn't need to, for example, vote for if every single person will be allowed to come in or with or without a mask or with or without vaccination or whether they should or should not social distance. You would make properly broad decisions about those sorts of things and your responses to those situations before the situations. Yeah, and this is another thing you run into a lot in advocating for direct democracy or broader democratic systems in general. Like people try to debunk the idea of giving people more of a voice in the things that matter in their lives and so on by saying, well, does everyone who is flying on a plane going to get to vote on the size of the plane's wings before it takes off? And obviously, that's just an absurd premise that has nothing to do with democracy. It's just a misappropriation of the ideas in this odd context or vote as every person comes in, whether each of them is going to wear a mask, <laughs> and like have the whole group uh, gather around to be like another person joined us. Do they have to wear a mask and do a quick vote? Yeah, it's just not necessary for us to operate in that way. I would say that when we are bringing measures to the floor, we are almost always determining what an acceptable range of behaviors are going to be based around the thing we discussed. That's essentially what we're always deciding in an anarchist society. What range of behaviors do we think is acceptable? Who will be given the right to do that range of acceptable behaviors and under what circumstances? And when it's thought of in that way, 
you start to understand that you can make a lot of very flexible decisions by making the decisions before unexpected things even take place. We now go to two extremely principled anarchists dealing with a crisis. Ah, oh, it's a beautiful day out here. Oh yeah, after such a big win, we gotta celebrate, so I brought cake. Oh, you brought the cake! It's got a black flag on it, just like our ideology. Oh, that's great. Glad that passed consensus. Oh, ooh, there's garbage. Kind of smells. Didn't we strike a garbage cleanup committee? Yeah, they scheduled the first meeting two weeks from now, so oh, okay. I wouldn't want to act outside consensus. They'll deal with it after they make a decision. Yeah, I mean, I'd be happy to pick up some of this stuff, but I don't want to step out of line. I want to respect the vision of the garbage cleanup committee because, I mean, they could come to any conclusion on this, and that's what we value. Yeah, that's true. You want to be the one to cut the cake? I see you eyeing it. Oh, yeah, you know I do. I got the knife already. That's a nice knife. Got this one just for the cake. <laughs> it's bigger than you need to cut a cake, but it will be thorough, so that's good. <laughs> oh, oh, oh my God. No, he slipped on a banana peel. Oh, oh, oh my God, that's oh, a lot that's of blood. That's oh no, my leg. Here, here, my I'm leg. actually a professionally oh. trained medical oh. doctor. Let me just, here, I'll, I'll get whoa, my kid. Whoa, 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 whoa. What are you doing? I was gonna save your life. No, Bleeding no, out. no, 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 buddy. I'm a true anarchist, okay? Get everybody around and we gotta vote on it. Oh yeah, consensus, consensus. Yes, consensus, consensus, correct, yes. Let me just, I'm not sure we have quorum. I'm gonna text people. Good, 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 good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We need to check with both the organization, obviously, oh, and the people oh, in the local oh, community. Oh. Yeah. Don't forget the people over there. Hey, can you guys yeah, come we... over here? We need to strike a quick emergency yeah, meeting. Yeah, yeah, Check inside the house as well. Don't forget to... Uh -oh, oh, anyone in here? Hey, after you're done, we're doing a meeting, everyone. Oh my God, that's a lot of... Oh, makes me kind of nauseous to see that much blood. You just try to hold it in? Yeah. Ooh, that's a big knife. It is, yeah. Seven minutes later. Okay, everyone, so we're seeking emergency authorization for me to do hierarchical authoritarian first aid on our comrade here bleeding out. Is there any other outstanding business that people want to talk about really quick? Yeah, I'd like to uh, talk about report backs about the zine, mm -hmm. and I think we really need to talk about that before we move forward. Sure, sure, yeah, by all means. Okay, so as we were talking about at our last meeting about the meeting about the meeting the zine should be coming out in two weeks if we can pass consensus on the last three articles two minutes later so what i'm saying is the zine i know it's been a big point of contention and a lot of people have had a lot of problems with the third and the fourth articles but I really think that we're going in a good direction, a good direction. That's great to hear. Thank you for that. Any other report backs before we vote on the emergency motion to temporarily strike a one person first aid committee to help our friend here bleeding out on the ground? Any? Yeah, I was just wondering, it just seems like there's a lot of garbage. Can we get that garbage cleaned up? It's stinky. Yeah, there's a committee struck on that and they will be dealing with the garbage after they're able to go through the appropriate process. It's stinky. I know it is stinky. Thank you. You know what? I'm just going to call a vote quick. He is really pale in the face. You still with us? Hey. Oh, getting a little woozy, but we're doing the right thing, buddy. We're going to get consensus. It's coming. I can feel it. Trust the process, baby. <clears throat> okay, everyone. So do we all have consensus that I can issue life-saving first aid to our friend bleeding out on the ground from self-inflicted knife wounds? Block. Gonna have to block on that one. Wait, what, what block? Why are you blocking? I mean, everyone else is raising their hands. Mm, I mean, I don't know. Like, yeah. if we set this precedent, I mean, he's never gonna learn to not cut his own leg. 
He's never going to learn to repair his own femoral artery. I don't know. That's a good point. If you give him the first aid, you know, give a man a fish he eats for a day, teach a man to fish, and then he's got actual self-determination. He can repair his own arteries in the future. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I value that feedback. He is not going to be able to learn or do first aid based on the amount of blood loss we're seeing here. It is an emergency. I think I should really just do it. I am a trained doctor. I do know what it's going to take to save him. It is going to be touch and go, and I need to get in there now. So I would just request if our blockers could just this once, just let's go to consensus on this as quick as we can. Can I put myself on stack? Oh, yeah, yeah, by all means, okay. by all means. I mean, you're bleeding out. Yeah, I'm getting real woozy, and uh, oh, I'm seeing stars. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, we really got to value the dissenters on this. Maybe, maybe oh, I should. I do value the dissenters. I just think oh. I actually have the tools here. I'm ready to go. Oh, I'm seeing the light. Can we get a consensus, please? I, I, oh, you did the right thing. I promise. This was the right thing. You did it. You did it right. Sock, no! <sighs> All right. Does anyone want cake? Uh, I think we're going to need to get consensus on a new cake cutter. Yeah, the lack of consensus on the first cake cutter led to huge problems. It was never even asked. That's true. Now one of us has to take the corpse to the coroner. All right, let's try to strike a corpse dragging committee by raising hands. Who feels willing and ready to do that? Has the time and energy right now? No one? Yeah, everyone's pretty busy, it looks like. Not a lot of... Huh. Okay. And that was how principled anarchists handle a crisis. So kind of moving along down these four pillars that you mentioned, councils, economics, defense, and intelligence, could you talk a little bit about the economics aspect? Yeah. As we've seen, economics, even after we try to step back from an economic reductionism, we still have to understand that economics drive an enormous amount of the transformation of society and culture and everything around it, including our revolutionary projects. By economics, what I'm talking about is both fully communist economics, like gift economies, actual mutual aid distribution, but also I mean things that are the protective belt of the project, you might say. Things like cooperatives and community land trusts, which are going to be necessary for this to interface with the rest of the world. There's lots of examples of mutual aid projects, and I don't just mean the charity model, which we see a lot of the time. They're actually places trying to create small gift economies, trying to create free stores, and actually trying to do the work of decommodifying things and democratizing the process in a lot of these cases. So there's lots of examples, but this is the broad strokes. It's so important. And there's so many different ways to approach this. Another example of kind of what you're talking about is stuff like tool libraries, and even to some extent, regular libraries, I think in the same way that there were kernels of capitalist society and the society that preceded it. Our current library system is one of the oldest kernels of the next society in this one. And one of the things that people have been doing prefiguratively is expanding that idea out to more than just books, using those kinds of shared economic relationships of holding resources in common. That's just another example. But yeah, for sure. If we're talking about building the society that we want, the provision of material economic need for people is absolutely at the core of it. 
we also have to be very careful that we don't get ourselves too intertwined with the systems as they stand. Because if we become reliant upon the systems as they stand, they can simply refuse to continue providing us assets. Let me just give an offhand example. Let's say you're going to do food distribution. And like some groups I've seen, what you do is you go to a local grocery store and you say, give us your overage, like all that stuff you were going to throw away, don't throw it away. We're just going to give it away. We're going to cook it into stews and stuff, and we're going to feed it to people. And even though this might sound like something that would never happen, surprisingly, it happens somewhat often. And this is overall a pretty decent idea if you're just trying to cleverly figure out how to reappropriate what would turn into waste into food. And that's not bad. But you are now at the whim of whether that grocery store just wants to keep giving you its overage. Mm -hmm. You haven't built anything that is your own. And who's putting pressure on them? Yeah. And now that means that they can just withhold from you at a whim. This is also, just to give another example, if your groups become very reliant on asking for grants, for example, even radical groups will file as like 501c3s because it allows you to create a bank account and, and a bunch of other stuff. And what will happen is they'll realize, oh, wow, we can like apply for grants and stuff. So you start applying for grants and you, you know, you get thousands of dollars, right? Tens of thousands of dollars if you mm. if you are applying for them at all. And money that makes a huge difference towards being able to help people. And they're able to get socks to people who are houseless. They're able to feed more people as a result of it. And they're like, wow, these grants are really helping us. These are really great. And it, it makes sense every step of the way yeah. that it, yes. it would. And, and so then the problem is, is that if you become reliant upon those grants, if you start getting used to those grants coming in, well, what happens if you do something the state doesn't like? What happens if the community of all of these different private entities, which were giving out those grants to begin with, decides they don't like you? They don't want that to happen anymore. They're done giving out grants to you. Well, now, where are you at? What have you built which provides you sustenance? Can you actually support yourself? And so what actually constructing prefigurative institutes has to involve actually creating these structures which can perpetuate themselves and can perpetuate a liberatory future is that we have to find ways of providing for ourselves. We have to find ways of creating our own food, creating our own things, you know, providing our own income and assets. And this is often quite a challenge for groups, but it involves the hard work of actually planting gardens and acquiring land. And there are ways for it to be done, but you have to be strategic in your thinking. And you have to ask yourself, what happens when my enemy decides to stop giving me assets? Right. And I guess that's like partly what's really powerful about the cooperative model, being able to create these organizations and institutions that are democratically controlled but can still participate in the market as it exists in order to at least have some of that autonomy. Yeah, it just struck me thinking about grants and stuff that cooperatives are one really powerful way to bring this prefigurative idea of democracy into like a huge part of people's lives, into the workplace. A really interesting aspect about this to me, and I'm thinking through what this could structurally look like, it's a step-by-step -step process. It's a very iterative process. It's defined by its experimentalism. Presumably, there's going to be mistakes made along the way that need to be corrected, or you try things one way. We're trying to feed the community this way, but it didn't work out, so now we're trying to feed the community this way. And that all seems very reasonable. 
With those emphases on the economic decommodification of necessary goods, creating institutions that help people to be housed if they need housing, make sure they get the food they need, make sure that food is being produced in the community and that food is being distributed to those who need it. You can create institutions that can fight poverty in your community and can give people education, help people learn things and stuff like that. That's all also tied in deeply to these democratic structures. Democratic structures are themselves an educational institution through the participation in them. I was just wondering, Anarch, if you could elaborate a little bit more on how institutions of direct democracy and institutions of the provision of need might interact in early stages of building prefigurative institutions. Yeah, I think this interaction is actually one of the most important of any of those four pillars. It seems to me that one of the most important parts of these cooperatives is that they're not just cooperatives alone, right? They're not just thrown out into the economic atmosphere in order to compete as just cooperatives against, say, corporations. Because in that occasion, they are very likely to backslide into essentially just being a worker-run corporation, behaving like one. I think it is very important that they are instead enjoined to the councils. This requires a lot of the time probably that the councils are going to be the people who start the cooperatives. And those cooperatives will have within their charters that they are linked to the councils. There are formal processes by which this can be done. Or another aspect is that these councils could act as confederators for existing cooperatives, finding cooperatives that want to become part of this council structure, which does allow them to cooperate together in order to corner the market as a group of cooperatives that are serving a democratic council structure that is constantly evolving and confederating new neighborhoods and new apartment buildings and so on. So I think linking these together is super important. I would look at Cooperation Jackson for a very good example. Oh, yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit more about Cooperation Jackson? Cooperation Jackson is an affiliate group of Symbiosis that is operating in Jackson, Mississippi. They are inspired by the tenets of communalism and Murray Bookchin. Symbiosis is a social ecologist organization, and they're part of it. And they've really taken prefiguration seriously there. And their approach has essentially been to do what I'm saying here, perhaps not with as much of an emphasis on defense and intelligence, but more the councils and the economic aspects. And their economics focus a lot on land and food sovereignty and the creation of distribution to people who are in need, while at the same time carrying out cooperative economics like I've discussed. Creating cooperatives that are actually operating within the market, they're providing goods, they're producing things, but those are joined together with the assemblies that they create. They're also creating assemblies in all of these places. They've actually put out some very good resources that people should go look at in order to build these councils. So if people just Google People's Assembly Overview, the Jackson People's Assembly Model, you'll find several places where this article written by Kalia Kuno and the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement essentially lays out how to create people's assemblies. And it lays out how they've approached the process of making these assemblies. They've got a few different kinds, but those details aren't as important. It's more to say that they are demonstrating an extremely good model for approaching prefigurative organization in the United States of America. Today's episode of Seriously Wrong is proudly brought to you by Telos, a communist corporation. At Telos, we are led by a principled communist vanguard 
and we promise that once we have monopoly control of the planet, we'll give our entire global corporate empire over to the workers, dissolve our corporation, and establish communism for all. At Telos, we are hard at work eliminating the primary contradiction that is preventing communism, other corporations. Corporations can't be communist, you say? Well, tell that to all our faithful Telos workers who identify as communist. Every single one has a Telos communist card which verifies their credentials as official communists. The internal structure of a corporation fundamentally prevents us from carrying out a project of revolutionary emancipation, you say? Well, rest easy knowing that Telos gives you our money-back guarantee. Utopia in another decade, comrades. You can cease that old eternal struggle for human emancipation and the exhausting work of constructing your own power as a subjugated people. Here at Telos, we specialize in all your dictatorship of the proletariat needs. Telos, withering away one day at a time. We now go to Sean pitching a sketch to Anarch. Okay, so this is the sketch I've been thinking about and working on. So you know like the phrase, building the new and the shell of the old? Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm still trying to break this exactly, but I was thinking like, so you make the sketch inside an egg, or like, it's inside an old egg. Mm-hmm. It's inside a shell, maybe it's an old shell, and there's mm-hmm. the new is inside mm-hmm. it. It's like maybe we're babies, like we're both drinking milk we're, and we're ba- we're babies. In diapers and stuff, and we're inside an egg. So we're the new in the shell of uh, the old, oh. and the old is like... Uh, I'm really not sure about ooh, that ooh, one. Ooh, ooh, uh, uh, I'm inside an egg, uh, old egg. And we could both do that. Yeah, I'm not sure about that one. But like an old egg, it wouldn't even need to be like an actual egg that is old. It could yeah. be like wrinkled. Oh. Wrinkled like an old man mm, uh, of an egg. Not to shoot you down or anything, but uh, think that maybe that's not the one. I think it's a great. So it's like an old egg, wrinkled uh, mm-hmm. egg, two babies inside. They're sort of cooing to each other. I'm not sure if you get it. You know, because the phrase I, yeah. is no, no. Mm-mm. All right, we'll do it next week. We'll we'll fucking uh, do it next oh, week then. Well, yeah. We'll find another guest and we'll do it next week. I mean, I didn't want to hurt your feelings or anything. You know, it's it's okay. My feelings aren't hurt. All right. Yeah. Sure. And now back to our show. Tune in next week to hear the sketch because not everyone gets it, and that's okay. I mean, I get it, but... I'm not sure you do. I'm not really sure you get it, get it. It's more... I'm I'm sorry, okay? I apologize. I'm not offended. It's okay. I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about some of the legitimate hard questions about what to anticipate in the future going through this process. When you start building something which challenges society, even if it's a passive challenge, and I'd argue that it probably should be a passive challenge, a challenge in the sense that it's providing an alternative that's appealing to people and which makes people question the legitimacy of the state, which is why they overreact. Apart from the self-perpetuating logic of hierarchy, there's no good reason for a state to try to crush down a program which is working well for people. It's a possibility that will happen. It's even likely that will happen. That's one of the big challenges to such an organizational thing is the outside pressure. And then there's another challenge as well, which I think is legitimate and worth thinking about, which is the internal challenges. The way that subtle hierarchies can arise within organizations where you could have, say, an affinity group, which starts to exercise power as if they are a vanguard and is able to structurally have institutions be distorted towards this maintenance of power. So I just wanted to open the floor in discussion on that. 
what some of the challenges and opportunities might be in the sphere of both the external pressures and the internal pressures for these sorts of organizations to get, I guess, a working framework to think about what sort of questions are going to have to be answered through this process. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right that there are internal and external pressures. I suppose we can start by talking about external pressures. External pressures, in a way, are baked into the fact that I've included defense and intelligence, right? There's a presupposition that a time will come at some point when we will need to defend ourselves. And this is not a way for me veiling an aggressive revolutionary war. It's really to say that as history has shown, as we build these structures and create a system for autonomy and dignity for the people. And these structures actually become powerful. The state, capital, and all of the hierarchical justifying systems of society react to that. The system will attempt to abolish it through violence, obfuscation, trickery, whatever it requires, they'll do it. And with that in mind, it just seems to me as if we have to start with the supposition this will take place at some point, and we have to create the bodies by which we will protect those projects of autonomy and dignity that we are attempting to create. Basically, where these councils become joined to people's defense groups, teaching as many people as possible in the area to defend themselves. Even if they're not part of this little people's defense group per se, starting to give people the tools to defend themselves, give people the knowledge that is needed such that if they were in a dangerous situation, they could get themselves out of it or they could stop an attacker and so on. But the question can present itself if the military or the militia body or the body of violence decides it does not want to listen, it really just has the power. It doesn't have to listen per se, such as when military coups happen in fully established states. The biggest solution to that fact is that the council is the militia. That's the big difference. In a state, the two are separate. You have essentially a military, and then you have the state as it stands. And the state has the military inside of it, but the military commanders are not writing legislation, and the congressmen are not commanding soldiers, and so on. And what that means is the military is sort of a distinct body that can just simply revolt. Whereas in the councils that I'm advocating here, we're also trying to educate everybody on those aspects of self-defense, regardless of their age, gender, abilities, or so on. We're trying to find what they can do. And in this way, we're hoping to eliminate the compartmentalization such that a revolt of the militias doesn't make much sense because that would be a revolt of the councils themselves, in which case the councils could simply vote for XYZ. Now, of course, that's not to say that that's airtight and it's absolutely perfect and that there's no risks involved and that can never go wrong, but it's at least the corrective that has been put in place in the model that I'm proposing. I like the framing of this as a source of internal pressure on these kinds of groups because there is a kind of tension between talking about militias and stuff and at least like what I would consider a utopian vision of the future. I'd rather there be very few militias because we're not constantly fighting with each other. Maybe that's too utopian. I don't know. But I think the corrective of spreading out self-defense knowledge and not having the military be a cordoned off separate entity from the main political body that we all have direct control over are really great ways to address some of those internal pressures. I think that we want to be careful about the sort of blurry line between where preparing for defense can become a type of offense or intimidation. Like, I think it's okay to get defensive when we need to, but our primary stance should be one of openness and willingness to work with others and diplomacy and really leading with that stuff. And I think that 
especially in a lot of the political contexts that I think people listening to this will be in. I would think it'd be strategic a lot of the time to follow the more cooperation Jackson route and de-emphasize or not pursue these two elements. Because a lot of the time I feel like a sort of fascination with guns and imagined conflict with the state can become a distraction from those other things that I think are more central. Building those social relations and economic relations that we've been talking yeah, about. Yeah, I think with that revolutionary custerism too, a lot of normal people, less political people, see that sort of stuff and it makes them not want to get involved. If you see an organization be like, hey, come join us, get into the sniper scope of the state with us, there's 10 of us. <laughs> it's not a really appealing offer to anyone. But if you're saying, hey, your kids are hungry and we're going to help feed them. You can be part of this process of not just feeding them, but feeding others. You can be part of this process of getting educated on tactics for protecting yourself in ways that are non-lethal or allow you to escape. Those sorts of things are appealing to people, I think, and something that people can be really empowered by or stuff like cop watches where you have abusive police forces who are being brutal. It's not even a matter of fighting or punching the police or whatever, like having shootouts that's defense. Defense from hostile police forces could be as simple as watching them and broadcasting it. And that sort of defense intelligence matrix can be the basis that, again, people's direct democratic organizations to defend themselves can come out of. The real challenge of the systems that these prefigurative strategies can make aren't necessarily the challenges of the direct conflict. You want to be able to throw up your hands and be like, whoa, whoa, we're just feeding kids here. We're not doing anything fucking weird. Anti-state groups with guns don't always have necessarily good ideology. The society that they might want to build might not necessarily be a society that your average person is going to be that interested in. But putting the focus on feeding people, helping people, building democratic institutions, if you're also talking about self-defense and conflict with the current power structures, when people see that, they see that in the context of it's to defend this. It's to defend these democratic structures that we're building. It's to defend these economic mutual aid institutions that we're building. This is the reason behind it. It's not just that we're against what is. It's that we want to build something new and we want to keep it safe. That's what defense is for. I agree with that 100%. It gives people something to actually want to defend. We've actually provided something to people. Instead of just hope of a better world, we're showing them a better world. We're saying, look, we will begin the repairs now. We will no longer promise you liberation in a far future after long insurrection. No, let us begin now to see what can be built. It's interesting to think too of like the variety of different types of attack that you might get, whether that be saboteurs on the inside, ostensibly. Obviously, you don't want to make it the norm to be on hyper paranoid cop jacketing and stuff like that. It's so destructive. But at the same time, like that is one of the tools that would probably be used against organizations that pose some threat. If you're giving away so much food that it's affecting the local business community, uh, they might try to find ways to sabotage you that way. There's also the legal maneuvers that people might be using to try to shut you down and say, hey, food not bombs isn't food safe. Food not bombs is going to give people food poisoning. But it makes me think about how one of these sort of methods of self-defense against these institutional things then requires to, whether or not you think that it is prefigurative to do so, to try to find anarchist lawyers who are willing to help you navigate the situations of being under legal attack, whether or not in the final society that you want to create, you want to have reserve armies of lawyers fighting it out with each other. There is a pragmatic requirement 
Yes. And one of the things is, is that you need to be prefiguring with an understanding that you cannot perfectly model the future society. All prefiguration is making some sacrifice against necessity. We are not literally creating communist relations in everything we do. We are creating a bunch of best approximations that we can do. That's the maximally component, right? Something I thought was really fascinating and interesting and kind of provocative in one of your videos in Constructing the Revolution, where you talk about the possibility of intelligence, not just in terms of group education and so on, but intelligence in terms of making nested groups of people who are specializing in you know threat analysis and the sort of things that we'd attribute to statist intelligence agencies in a context that is horizontal anarchistic and in accordance with the confederated values of this organization. I guess my two questions are, what do you think is the baseline necessity of this? And secondly, how do you prevent something like that from being something that can become, say, like a self-perpetuating institution of information control and command, rather than being something that is in service of the institution and organization? I think that intelligence is one of the hardest ones. Because there's two aspects to intelligence, and that is you kind of need a committed counterintelligence. You need a people that are going to spend their time going to work, trying to surveil the enemy system and gather the data that is needed in order to properly go into conflict with that system. And in that capacity, any established intelligence body, it's very difficult to both maintain its safety because it needs to be kept safe and it needs for all of its information to be able to be compartmentalized so that it can hold on to this information so that the enemy doesn't find out what it knows, so that they don't know what they know, what they don't know, and so on. They need to have that compartmentalized so that that information doesn't leak out. Well, that's a problem because the councils are supposed to be in control and are supposed to be that agency themselves. The democratic structure is what keeps these things from functioning by their own desires and not by the desires of the people. Now, as far as like keeping the intelligence agency from becoming a shadow government all by itself, I've spent some time trying to build a structure where those people can constantly be held accountable. And that involves delegating people to do audits of your intelligence. And the auditor is essentially going to be able to go in and find out anything that this small intelligence pod knows. And for those people being elected based on your trust of them. And you also need some ability to what I've called unsecret information, like the WikiLeaks model, essentially, right? The unsecreting information. We essentially have this decentralized mechanism for publishing information where everybody can see it. And the intelligence pod, of course, I should remind people, is consisting of members of the council, but those committed to undergoing this task. What would the challenge be to say all information to everyone in the same way that we distribute military and police power into self-defense? Is it possible to distribute intelligence services into people's intelligence? What are these secret things of strategic importance that can't be shared? I assume that there is a good answer to this question. I'm just, it's not coming to mind. Most of what we do is totally going to be fine to convey. And the vast majority of it is going to be completely above board. 
But if it does come time when we are in conflict with the state, we're certainly not going to want the state to know what the movements of our resistance movement is or where the safe houses are. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. There's a variety of things about our movements and the things we're doing that we need to keep safe from the state because the state cannot be trusted with that information. So there is a delicate trade-off that has to be had when it comes to military affairs and it comes to the strategizing for one day needing to defend a project where you probably will want to keep a significant number of things secret from the state because the state is just not trustworthy. Intelligence services, they're a bullshit job by one of Graeber's definitions, which is that you only need them if other people need them. If you're in a competitive environment where there's intelligence subversion, spycraft and stuff going on, then you need some way to at least defend yourself against it, if not participate in it yourselves. I don't know. I'm just thinking through this and I might be totally naive, but I wonder if that's not a contradiction or if it's possible to have unity between means and ends while engaging in a more traditional intelligence services of some kind. It almost feels like there needs to be some sort of qualitative challenge to that, even within a prefigurative organization. Yeah. I mean, it should be said, you know, this takes a lot of different forms. Some of them are not very controversial at all. For example, there's lots of anti-fascists who are just doing research on who the local fascist groups are in their area, finding out who the members of your KKK or your Proud Boys or whatever, you know, finding out who those members are, trying to stay aware of their actions and behaviors and their intentions and following their social media and reporting the information that you find to people who might be at risk and things like that. Those are all already taking place. It'd be a, a decent example of the sort of thing that you might want to carry out as we speak. I feel like there's overlap here to thinking about privacy because even in an informational commons, that doesn't necessarily mean that everything that's in your diary, everybody gets to read, or every photo on your camera roll is public information now. I understand those are pretty qualitatively different things from the type of intelligence that we're talking about here, but I think having social understandings about certain types of information being allowed to be kept secret is not necessarily inconsistent with any type of ideal that I hold, especially we're talking about the location of the safe houses or the fact that we have the plans to the Death Star. I feel like <laughs> defining boundaries where if the council knows what it doesn't know, like it knows that it doesn't know the location of the safe houses, but that the intelligence pod knows that. I think there can be a defining of boundaries of what types of information can be kept secret on a societal level and enforcement mechanisms like you're describing with the auditor or auditors, councils or whatever, defining what information is public and isn't would be a continuous process. These aspects of trust and secrecy are so important in the intelligence component, but I would say more broadly as well. Secrecy is a form of power. It's gatekeeping of knowledge. I do plan to actually inspect the concepts of trust and secrecy at a later date, precisely because you'll notice the challenge of thinking about these ideas and trying to delineate these appropriate boundaries and trying to understand what appropriate boundaries for privacy is or what is privacy on a broader scale, privacy of your organization and privacy of what sort. These are all challenging topics. 
See, and my instinct is always to say all information to everyone. It's an old hacker phrase, I think. Stuck in my head somewhere. But at the same time, I feel that way, but that's not so all-inclusive of all information to everyone that I like think on your ID next to your face, there should be a picture of your balls also, because it's <laughs> other information that people have a right to. Yeah. <laughs> There's no such thing as DMs, only Ms that are publicly available. <laughs> Yeah, but I think this is a really important question to continue unpacking and looking through these ethical lenses of decentralization of power, democratic participation, and individual autonomy and freedom, and thinking about the most basic forms of people's intelligence organizations that you would form today and what structures you could do now, and thinking of that as a trajectory with continuity towards what sort of intelligence structures would exist in an ideal society, which might be the abolition of intelligence organizations per se as we know them. There could be any variety of ways to think about this. I will say, I don't believe in a perfect system. I don't believe in anything that is bulletproof, right? I don't believe that anything doesn't contain flaws. I think everything contains some flaws by its very nature. When I propose these systems, what I'm attempting to do is propose what I think is the best possible system that I can see for the conditions. Not a perfect one, but one where the failure points are least disastrous. We've built in the maximal degree of safeguards and responses that we can. And if we carry out the process as it is stated, we would hope for it to produce the ideal outcomes. There totally could be failure points, especially in defense and intelligence. I think that's an open question as to how we organize those appropriately. So I agree with you that there's a little bit of tension in this concept. And what I would really like to see is more people put in some legwork trying to develop answers on this, because I feel like at the moment, it's just a topic that I have brought to the fore. And I would like to see other people discuss this and, and come to their own conclusions on what our approaches should be on that. Well, and I thought your video on this subject and other subjects for that matter, but your video on this subject is brilliant. And the question of thinking about intelligence and being inspired to think about it, it's a really fascinating thought shape that I hadn't engaged with before. What was the, there was an example of a, an anarchist intelligence collective that you mentioned in that video as well, right? Yeah. The Contras Vedka, which was the intelligence uh, in the Ukraine during the anarchist revolution that took place in Ukraine at the same time as the 1917 revolution that was taking place in Russia. And with a friend of mine, we sat down and we worked out how this intelligence might work while still having the necessary components to function as an intelligence agency. And we laid out this system, we created this model, and then we read this book about the Contras Vedka, and we found they had come to very similar conclusions about how you balance the means ends unity of anarchism with the necessity of resisting infiltration and getting good intelligence on the people who are a threat to you and the threat to others. And the Contras Vedka turns out to have a very similar structure to the one that I give in the video, even though I had not read in depth about the Contras Vedka beforehand. Another really, really brilliant thing that you mentioned, Anarch, is how, how we try to deal with these external problems is the source of the internal problems. It seems pertinent to explore some of the ways we prevent people from using external threats as justifications to build their own power 
organizations of small groups of people who are inferred with some group legitimacy to keep secrets about keeping secrets about keeping secrets. And then you could have the result of that everything we'd be worried about seeing in a vanguard organization. We decentralize self-defense, but we retain a small group who are dealing with intelligence. Or maybe we abolish intelligence, then we get a small meta group, the intelligence intelligencers, you know, the people who really manage the intelligence that everyone's doing. And then all of a sudden, that's the place where the hierarchy can emerge. Or you could go even further and be like, all information to everyone, but librarians are really in charge of like <laughs> what information is going to come up first when you're searching things. So that's where the threat of power centralization, the threat of withholding information that's pertinent to people's lives is. I think you're right, Anarch, and that we're always reaching for this next plateau of figuring out how can we do this a little more ethically? How can we preclude the challenges that are arising or could potentially arise? hopefully anticipating a potential problem and cutting it off at the past before you have to deal with the totalitarian librarian society. You can actually preclude that from happening by anticipating the next little while. I think these are some of the most pertinent and hard questions in addressing this. And I think the ones that we're most likely to hear, but I think we're not setting out to do all of this because we think it's the easiest thing in the world. We're not having a describing easy things contest. We're talking about what we think is right. And so what we think is right is often going to be not easy. So I would invite everyone to join us in thinking through how can we remain consistent in our principles going through this trajectory? It's a really, really worthy place to focus time and attention. Nice. Papa, tell us the story. Tell us the story of the failed revolution. All right, but only because you did all your chores around the house. And, and I'd like to say, boys, you know, we call it a failed revolution. But in retrospect, I think a lot of progress really was made. I don't always see it at the time, but it was a good shot and it's left a positive impact. So let's see where to start. I guess just at the beginning. Once upon a time, your dad and thousands of other working people came together in confederation. You know, we started with communal resource pooling agreements, things like shared meals and grocery buying programs, community gardens, and there was always direct democratic elements. And we also started tool libraries and communal property in all of our communities, the first step. So between all of these things, we had a really strong material, communist economic basis of sharing. And it really went great. An incredible thing about these things is that by pooling resources and coming together, there's actually a real economic benefit as compared to going alone. So people who participated immediately benefit from it. So it's sort of picking up and it's going from neighborhood to neighborhood and people are starting their own charters, their own community organizations and it's spreading so much that workplaces and production are starting to be involved in it and we're confederating. So it's growing and growing and this is over about a period of 15 years. Uh, that, that sounds amazing. Yeah, that sounds great. It was, yeah, it is amazing. It was exciting to be a part of and it was thrilling, you know, we were really doing it and we stayed committed. We did. We stayed committed to direct democracy, usufructian property relationships, ecological stewardship, decommodification, all that stuff. We stayed committed to it, even when the external forces were pushing on your dad, him and the other working people. We pushed back against that. We really did. It is an exciting and cool thing, I think. Maybe not entirely a failed revolution. That doesn't sound like a failure at all. Sounds great. It's positively prefigurative, father. That's right. Now, prefiguration is a fairly new term. It was started in the 70s. But just so you know, human beings have been prefiguring for as long as history itself. 
you know what they say about prefiguration. Prefiguration is the deliberate experimental implementation of desired future social relations and practices in the here and now, boys. That's what they say. Yep, I've heard that before. Deliberate experimental, boys. Experimental. That means it doesn't always work, boys. And we can't call it a failed revolution per se, just because it eventually completely collapsed and now we're living in a dark age where there's no such organizations. It still had a type of success, I think. But maybe I just don't want to admit it's failed, boys. What went terribly wrong in the social transformation? Well, there's a lot of things. You know, one thing is that in some cases, natural differences amongst expertise were turned into these informal hierarchies where not everyone was able to be part of the process. And you had sort of a transformation from something which is good and reasonable, which is utilizing people's different capabilities and so on, becoming calcified in many cases into a structure of command and control based on that hierarchy. This is something that informally was rising at different times, and we didn't have sufficient measures to push back against that. So unfortunately, I'd say one of the issues is that specialization turning to hierarchy, boys. That's not good. That's a symbol of gatekeeping. But it's illogical, Dad. Why would being better at something mean you get to boss other people around? Well, I, boys, I've talked to you about the strange ideology of hierarchy before. All these sorts of bizarre conflations floating around in the public imagination on this stuff. Just because you studied something more than someone else doesn't give you any authority over them, or at least it shouldn't confer any authority. Being more knowledgeable than someone or more experienced gives you a responsibility to share that knowledge. But unfortunately, those hard lessons weren't integrated into our project, boys. And, you know, consensus can be used great. I think we had some great consensus meetings, but if it's applied in the wrong context in the wrong way, it can be used for some pretty cynical politicking. And people can use blocks to clog up processes that have to do with their own accountability. So I saw that happen a handful of times. I bet the pernicious hierarchies of patriarchy, ableism, and cis-heteronormativity were used as cynical bludgeons in order to maintain power. I couldn't say it better myself, son. I've raised you well. I've taught you well. The way that a teacher closes the gap between the teacher and the teach, so must a father close the gap in knowledge between parent and son. And I can see I've done that well by your good guess there. Yeah, with the mediation, you need good mediation to keep those informal hierarchies out. Otherwise, you're going to be accidentally silencing voices that can contribute things that are essential to the collective flourishing. And that is unfortunately what happened. But if that was happening, then wouldn't large numbers of people start leaving the group and fracturing the confederated structure? Because if they're not standing united together, they would fall apart. Absolutely. I saw all sorts of stuff. There's these subcultural fights. People were antagonizing power structures in ways that were drawing attention to us. Heat score, as they say, was making people very upset. Then started getting fights about it. There's this poor mediation issue in many instances. And people started to understand that their voice wasn't mattering. That there's instances where delegation was improperly structured and small groups were managing to wrestle away power in some instances from the collective. So there weren't proper mechanisms to exercise power as a group. What ultimately happened, and I think this was the biggest thing that eventually caused the splits, the fracturing, the lack of confederation, and eventually the failure of the project was ultimately there's a small group of people, the librarians, the use of librarians who dealt with the delegation and spread property. 
They had too much authority. Too much was delegated onto them. They became a centralized intelligence committee for the organization in a way. And they had the right to secrecy, but not just that, the right to keep secret what secrets they're keeping, which allowed bad actors to monopolize power over distribution. And I think, in my opinion, that's what led to the downfall. That was the that was the end. That's what caused the split. That makes sense. There is no trust without solidarity. That's exactly right. Once you feel the system's not working for you and you can see an upper crust forming, it's really an alienating thing. You know, I tried to be a good, faithful revolutionary and keep the faith and mediate problems as best I could, but it was demoralizing. So are we screwed, Daddy? Yes, son. As I've explained before, we're all very screwed. But there is hope, and this was a failed experiment, and an experiment is just that, son. But we can learn from it, we can critique the mistakes, and yes, we are now in what many are calling a reactionary dark age. But you, the next generation, you, my two beautiful twin sons, it's your generation that's really going to be able to fix things. I mean, our generation, we had our chance, we had our fun, but now it's just all about protecting the kids and growing them up, and then, I don't know, hopefully you kids can figure it out. So consider the torch past. Yeah, well, I don't want to be made into a battery for robot overlords, Dad. Hopefully we can learn from your mistakes and our movements and not repeat the things that led to your downfall. That's exactly right. And just so you know, son, it's very unlikely that people could be made into batteries because they consume more energy than they put out. Thank you for that information. That will quell my deep existential terror. If we're ever enslaved by the robots, it won't be as batteries. It will be as laboring subjects. What a comfort. Thanks, Dad. Thanks, Dad. All right, well, that's enough stories for one night. You two get into your bunk bed there, one above the other, and Daddy's going to go downstairs to watch the TV from the Dominant Society. It's a guilty pleasure. (laughs) That sounds very bad, but enjoy. Don't be too hard on yourself. I'm going to do the same tomorrow. Ah, yes. My two sons, my two revolutionary sons, our last hope. An interesting historical example, still ongoing, but it's an interesting in practice example is the Zapatistas in Mexico. They're engaged in a prefigurative democratic decommodifying project, but my understanding is they didn't start out that way. Do you want to talk a little about that, Daniel? The Zapatistas are, to me, one of the most incredible examples of a horizontal society on earth. And I think that they have a lot of lessons for us. So the Zapatistas as they stand now is actually a sort of polity sitting in Chiapas, Mexico. And it consists of a large number of people, thousands of people are involved in this project that's being carried out. But that's not how it began. It actually began really far back as something called FLN, which was more like a vanguard organization than what we now see in the Zapatistas. This kind of evolved into what was called the EZLN. And the EZLN had these roots in Zapatismo, which was the thought of a guy named Emiliano Zapata. It was mixing together a lot of things, including things like Maoism and this anti-globalization movement, anti-neoliberalism was a big part of it. I would say maybe even the thing at the front line of the whole struggle. But it was also an indigenous people's movement that was very decolonial. And that's what it was trying to do. It saw itself as the representation of the needs of the indigenous peoples of Mexico. But most of what they did was struggle in urban centers at that point. They 
were essentially a urban guerrilla group that was constantly in conflict with the state. Over time, however, that doesn't work usually. <laughs> you get pushed out of the urban centers as they suppress you more and more, right? And that's what happened. They got pushed out into the jungles, or you might say that they went out there in order to be able to continue the conflict. And when they did so, they went into the Lacandon jungle and they met the indigenous peoples in Chiapas. I don't mean to in any way demean them, but that was really not the main part of their project beforehand, interacting with those actual people out there in the rural areas of Mexico. It was instead more of a project in the urban centers trying to create a movement to support those needs. But now they actually went out there and they spoke with the indigenous people. And they said, we've been fighting a war for you, essentially. Here we are. We would like to offer our expertise and we would like you to join us in this war. What shall it be? Will it be war or not? And the indigenous peoples there in Chiapas said to them, yes, it will be war, but you will not be the leaders. Essentially, what they said, they came to an agreement with the EZLN that the village councils that already existed would actually maintain their primacy over this militant group. And this single decision is the example of prefiguration taking place. Because in saying, no, we will not be ruled by an authoritarian entity. No, another vanguard will not take over this area. They didn't have that maybe awareness in this way that an anarchist might frame it. But they also knew that they would not let themselves be subjugated to some small military vanguard. They said, no, democracy will rule this society, even though maybe they're not calling it democracy. But that's essentially the principle that's playing out. The people, these councils are what will rule society. You, if you are indeed what you say you are, will act in service to these institutions. And if you think about it, what they really did is in one fell swoop, put in place a lot of what we have just laid out as what we wanted, which is this communion of the councils and creation of a defense entity, which is instead in service to the councils and not a society that is in service to its military. And in this process, they essentially created this dual power structure that is very much prefiguring a future society in a way that very few other places on earth are or have ever, at least in the era of capitalism, I suppose. Another prominent example of this also starts out not as a prefigurative project like Cooperation Jackson, but as something that has more of a political vanguardist nature, and that's the autonomous administration of North and East Syria, aka Rojava. How did that become a prefigurative project? I've learned a lot more about that specific juncture in the Zapatistas than in Rojava, but I'll loosely intimate what it is I do know about what took place. So what came to radicalize and expand into this area in northeastern Syria actually began as a group called the PKK. And the PKK was another kind of authoritarian left vanguard organization. They did a lot of involvement in the politics. They were also a militant guerrilla group. They organized a lot of power within their areas. And the PKK still exists, in fact. But the leader of the PKK, Abdullah Ojalan, was imprisoned and remains imprisoned to this day, I might add. And while he was imprisoned, read Murray Bookchin. And Murray Bookchin transformed his way of looking at the world. He would say as much, might I add. He is now himself, Abdullah Ojalan, a thinker in the social ecologist tradition. Abdullah Ojalan goes on to essentially tell this vanguard that he has control over from prison, I want all of you to begin studying Bookchin and social ecological ideas and communalism and to begin developing these thoughts for yourselves. And also, we are going to begin the process of essentially dissolving my power, of us creating something that is more robust, more long-lasting, can actually transition into a democratic society. 
And this might have then been seen as an act of prefiguration on the part of Oshelon and the people who were taking place within this process. This act of saying, no, we refuse to wait. We are going to create this future world in the now. This was a very important process. So what we have is Rojava, which is an even wider scale project than the Zapatistas. I think they have like 6 million people in their polity. And they are, I would say, a very good example of creating a horizontal society, but they are at a mass scale. And at that scale, we are watching a lot of the challenges that they face, which are challenges with delegation. They are challenges with maintaining power within the council structures. But the intention is to create a confederation of autonomous council structures that together form a self-governance structure for the region. And we would hope to see a larger portion of the region around them. But yeah, that's our other example. And it's interesting because in both of these examples, what you see is that a group of committed ideological militant organizers seems to be a very important component, but it only becomes powerful at the very juncture at which it stops being a vanguard, at which it refuses the authoritarianism that typifies that approach. And what I would say is the solution to this in anarchist thought is something called specifism. It's a kind of platformism. You're creating this small ideological group of committed anarchists, but they are starting with the presumption that the very process that took place in those two examples will take place. That as they create this group that spreads a revolutionary consciousness and acts as a catalyst for this transformation, that they will purposely subvert power to democratic structures and create democratic structures under which to subvert power to begin with. And that is the process that has to be carried out. Instead of this weird thing where we do some pretend vanguardism for a little while, once again, not to demean either the PKK or the FLN, but you know, we do this authoritarian structure for a while and then we ditch it and then we go to the, no, we just skip the whole part where we do the authoritarian structure. We create the group of people that will act as a catalyst and we expand and expand and democratize and decommodify as we go. That's the plan. Over the recent years, it's been more and more questioned on Twitter.com what authoritarianism means and what sort of qualitative features would define an authoritarian organization. And maybe the distinction that you're drawing here between vanguardism and specificism might be a good example case for you just briefly explain what authoritarianism is and organizing in that context and how specificism hopes to challenge the authoritarianism of vanguardism. I would say authoritarianism is largely about monopolization of power. It functions through essentially centralizing more and more of the decision-making to a central node. And therefore, in that process, it is disempowering the masses of people from their own willful action. It's essentially making it to where the power to make decisions is being placed into a smaller and smaller and smaller number of hands. I would say that it's a scale, right? It can be more or less authoritarian. As it's more authoritarian, centralization of power is taking place, which requires a sort of monopolization to take place. It requires a disempowerment of everything at the periphery. And in anti-authoritarian stances taking place, we are dispersing power. We are returning power to those who already hold it. We are unalienating power, you might say. That's what I would say is the difference between a horizontal and authoritarian approach is how much is power being monopolized? How much is it being gatekept? 
How much is it being narrowly controlled? As the smaller number of hands is upon the reins, the authoritarianism therefore increases. And the authoritarian also seeks to generally sabotage the acquisition of a similar power, right? If they have some knowledge, they want to make sure nobody else gets that knowledge. If they have some right to violence, nobody else gets that right to violence. This is the broad principle that plays out. Authoritarianism is a representation of a narrower, narrow group of people or more and more exclusive group of people being given power over others. It's interesting. It's almost like authoritarianism as a trajectory or anti-authoritarianism as a trajectory rather than a static state. Like you can think of an authoritarian system as something that's moving on a trajectory to more and more centralized power and is alienating more and more people in different ways. Whereas an anti-authoritarian perspective would be decentralizing power and separating power out more and more over time. So in the specific example, you're starting with a small group of people. As a practical matter, you have to start with a small group of people when you do anything. But the goal of it is to expand and separate and make sure that it's not a small group of people commanding and controlling larger groups or dictating what people should do, but bringing people into that process and dissolving their own relative monopoly. Yes. In fact, I would say an specific group should operate upon the consensus processes that they wish to model, really for two reasons. Number one, it's just a good thing to do. We should be avoiding trying to create the vanguard within ourselves. We should try to disperse the power over the people that are in the immediate organization because that's just a good in and of itself. But number two, it's back to this thing that way earlier Aaron was talking about, where it's like a training ground. We are modeling these behaviors that we wish to expand outwards. By acting through these consensus processes internally, we are learning the process of consensus. We are learning to be operators within these democratic structures. And therefore, when the time comes where we want to build a council, we want to tell people how to democratize their situation, which we have built along with them, we can say, ah, we have been using this structure. Might I suggest to you that it would work thusly, and we can help you through the process of learning this structure that we've been using? It essentially allows this to be a closed loop instead of us commanding from above. Every single step that we take is the building of the structures that will subvert the power of the catalyst group. The catalyst group will simply just become another confederated organization in this big combination of councils. We're once again, not commanding the councils. They are just another one of the councils. So within a vanguard organization, is that it's a small group of people doing entry into a mass group to try to steer it in a direction that's been predetermined by that group of people, by whatever internal processes they use, but most often as control of leader figures, chief of staff type figures, and these informal power dynamics. So they're going in to try to impose their will. But in a specific organization, they're motivated by agreed upon values and stuff like that going into these organizations. But in a way, they're also doing the opposite of what a vanguard would be doing in that instance, looking for places where power is getting too centralized, looking for places where people in the group are exercising a disproportionate amount of power based on their participation or based on the structure of the organization, and then using their collective power to help course correct these mass organizations to be sufficiently mass organizations, to be sufficiently democratic, to make sure that these potentials of these informal hierarchies, and whether that is informal hierarchies of expertise or informal hierarchies of interpersonal domination, racism, 
misogyny and so on aren't forming. And so we can see that the specifist versus vanguard thing as a qualitative difference in terms of what the focus is would be because it is by definition never meant to be an imposition of anything except for imposing the values of non-imposition whenever possible. That really clicks for me of how it squares the circle on some of the challenges of debates that you see around vanguardism and maybe some of the benefits of working in small groups and stuff like that, or just the practical matters of needing to start with a small group of people. It seems to me that a specificism is a really good ethical challenge to that structure while retaining what is structurally sound about the vanguard model, which is a small group of people participating in a mass organization as a component part, which is something that could be part of something healthy. Yes, I agree. Specifist organizations are sometimes, I've seen something similar to them be called a catalyst group by Irvin, for example. And the idea is that they act as a catalyst more than anything. They're going in attempting to create some chemical reaction that will carry forth. But yeah, I think that's precisely the distinction between them. Vanguards, in a general sense, you might say function on a model called democratic centralism. It's kind of like what the Soviet Union did at the very top. It's where you elect the guys who elect the guys that are at the top, and then they make all of the decisions, and then you all agree to do it. Whereas in a catalyst group or in a specifist organization, you're all acting under consensus to make the decisions, and then you act upon them as per your consensus. So it starts with the democratic structure internally as well. And it is seeking to create a bunch of structures everywhere else that will dissolve authoritarian relations where they find them. And then join those nodes where we have gotten rid of the authoritarian control, or we've seized some territory for it. We confederate it together into this larger project instead of just trying to create a bunch of clients to our vanguard, a bunch of things that act in service to us. Instead, all of it is now trying to be joined together into this horizontal structure. One way I think about this that I think is compatible with what we've been saying, but maybe slightly different, it just struck me that an alternative way of thinking about this rather than a small group of people coming together and then dissolving their own power is that for a lot of us out there currently, we're alone by ourselves, not participating in any kind of democratic organization, with the exception of some of these wonderful examples we've been talking about, cooperation, Jackson, Sabatistas, etc. We live in a society that doesn't operate on these types of anti-authoritarian relationships that we're describing. You can come together with one or two other people and start having democratic relationships with them and seeing what types of prefigurative things you can do together. It's just going from people by themselves to people with their immediate friends, neighbors, workplace associates that they know, etc., coming together, building democratic relationships with them, and then expanding that out. Maybe your original little group will remain its own little group that interfaces with the other groups in some other way, and maybe it just grows and becomes the neighborhood counselor, becomes the workplace counselor, whatever your particular. Maybe that's a vanguard group, maybe that's a catalyst group, I don't know, but taking the prefigurative logic into account, it's just a very straight progression up from no democratic relations in your life currently to with your affinity group to with those that you can confederate with from there. A linear progression of building more democratic relationships with other people. I think that's a good corrective to point out that these small groups are themselves already confederations where people have 
traded off some of the raw extreme autonomy that you have as an individual in exchange for all the benefits of pooling resources and pooling knowledge and, and pooling decision making. So what might seem to be a contradiction is actually just part of this linear process of participating in democracy. I think that's a really good point. Yeah, I think the reason why specificism ends up coming up in these conversations or something like platformism ends up coming up in these conversations about prefiguration so often is because we are trying to figure out so much about organizations in prefiguration. If we're trying to create a future world, we start to have to ask questions about what does it look like? What is it that I'm trying to create then? Because I have to ask what I'm trying to create now then. That becomes a question of means as soon as we talk about prefiguration. One of the things that was really a big corrective from platformism, which was accused of being very vanguardist, to specificism is platformism tended to shut itself off from the social movements. People were only supposed to be part of that organization, and they would only organize under its auspices, even if there were some cooperation sometimes. Whereas a specificism advocates something called social insertion, which is essentially where you're present in these organizations all the time, precisely as you said, precisely as you intuited. This ends up being a very important component, constantly being available, giving your skills to these other organizations, trying to compel them towards an anarchist cause. This all really ties together nicely into a plan for actual revolutionary construction. What we've kind of done here is described what is sometimes being called an specificist communalism. And especially with this emphasis that we've been discussing about building the council structures, you could have an specificism that is more narrowly a trade union thing, for example. You could be more economic and still be a specificist. But I would say what we're trying to do is create this intersectional communalist specificism where we are trying to hone in on where all of the true struggles with hierarchical power are taking place and asking ourselves how they can be undermined and replaced with the aspects of a horizontal society we wish to create. Shit, I just have like a little angles on my shoulder. I want to refute, but it's probably best not to. Oh, God, I know. Every <laughs> single time I ever use the word authoritarianism in any video, I'm like, do I have to talk about on authority? Oh, my God. <laughs> we now go to the tiny little angles on Sean's shoulder sketch. Sean, Sean, to abolish authority in the industry of the cotton mill is to abolish the industry itself. Yeah, a tiny buzzing factory owner. Leave me alone. Even if I were to accept that specialization involves a quote-unquote certain kind of authority, there's a qualitative and meaningful difference between the command and control authority of a boss under the threat of punishment and the facilitating authority of a recallable delegate functioning in accordance to a democratically agreed charter of principles. It's just, you're comparing unlike things to one another. But, but the necessity of authority will nowhere be found more evident than on board a ship in the high seas. There, in time of danger, the lives of all depend on the instantaneous and absolute obedience of all to the will of one. Now that's, that's, that's really misrepresenting the critique of authority, Little Angles. Even the captain of a ship or the director of a film or whatever, and their authority is part of an integrated system of knowledge that involves the agency and counter-authorities of like a number of specialists
us working together in concert. What makes the ship function is never really the absolute obedience to the will of one under a threat of punishment, but instead a sort of integrated social system where obedience, wherever it exists, to a limited sense, is rooted in trust, knowledge, rapport, morale, not the threats and fears required for total obedience. Those two things are just so qualitatively different little angles, and to conflate them risks really, really undesirable outcomes. So you think that when you have changed the names of things, that you have changed the things themselves? You're mocking the world. <laughs> little factory owning angles. You think when you have merged the names of things, treating apples and oranges as one thing, that you've merged the things themselves? Look, look, I know this is based on some ancient sort of like 1870s beef. You're complaining about anti-authoritarians within your political sphere that over-apply these principles in ways that you didn't agree with. I mean, I'm sympathetic to that. I, I've argued with dipshits before too, and it is annoying. But the consequences of this conflation could mean a naturalization of command and control threats of violence under the threat of punishment, the elite centralization of power at the expenses of common people, and at worst, a justification for violence against people on behalf of this ruling elite. We can't use this 1870s writing as a guidepost to the 2020s, except maybe as a launching pad for more relevant and more interesting conversations. It's just but not tenable. The steam, the, the steam. Angles, angles, little buddy. Let me quote you. Okay, I'll quote you. Why do the anti-authoritarians not confine themselves to crying out against the political authority? The state. All socialists are agreed that the political state, with its political authority, will disappear as a result of the coming social revolution. That is a quote from On Authority. What you got to understand is that anti-authoritarians are talking about the political authority of the state. History has shown that the form of revolutionary organizations strongly influences the society they create. We really can't take these debates from the 1870s, rip them out of context, ignore 150 years of history, and then treat people's sort of common section rants from the time as scripture. No. And I, look, I, I don't want a tiny angle no, on my shoulder. Please no. just go away. Go. go. I'm melting. I'm Get out melting. Of here. Bye, tiny angles. Jeez. All right, I'll turn to my other shoulder now. Hey, little political collective on my other shoulder. Obviously a collective because no individual is the authority on this critique. Do you, you think I did okay with that? Did I, did I cover that all right? I thought you I did. Thought it was good. I, thought yeah, it was I, good. I have some points of contention, I think to be you honest. totally misrepresented us. <laughs> little political collective. You carry so much vibrant difference within you. <sighs> I love you. We love I, you. I love him. I, I thought it was great. I don't love him. We, we, you don't speak for us. And now back to our show. We now go to the Revolutionary People's Country Club, where a lowly bureaucrat from the Department of Fisheries is learning the intricacies of proletarian rule. Wow, it's so good to meet you, Supreme Commander of the Party Vanguard. I'm very glad that you gave me the time to petition you for your advice. Hey, you've been great in the Department of Fisheries. Let's hit a couple balls, huh? <laughs> uh, good to see you. How's the family? Are they enjoying the estate? Uh, yeah, way better than beforehand. No begging on the streets. Thank you so much. So I'm thinking about the long term here. I'm thinking about the future. And here, one second. For... Oh, that was great. Look at that fly. Wish I had more time to work on my swing, but yeah. a lot of rebellions to keep down these days. Oh. I used to, people are like, why'd you do that? I'm like, oh, well, they're, you know, I try to explain it and stuff. I just realized, just say material conditions. They just eat it up. Uh, oh, but it is material conditions, right? Isn't that right? Oh, yeah, yeah, it is. But just between you and me, I'm trying to bring you up here. I'm trying to invest in the future of the party. So I'm just gonna let you in a little secret. 
it doesn't even really matter what you're saying. You just say necessary. Historical necessity. Yeah. Historical oh. necessity. Yeah. Wow. Oh, that's what's going on? You guys don't even have a plan. You just... Doesn't even make any sense. Oh, wow. That's relieving. I had been wondering, do I have to read all these books? No, no. Just tell them they have to read them. Oh, and then if they don't get it, you just tell them to read more, right? Yeah, they didn't get it. They have to read and study oh, more. Oh, yeah. that's what's going on? Oh. They're like, oh, we need a shorter work day or bring back the soap. And I'm like, well, you know, we patiently tried. We patiently tried. We patiently tried. But it just didn't work. Genius. And it was materially necessary. And because Marx talks about materialism, it doesn't even matter what you're saying. Just try me on anything. Okay, 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 okay. Look, I'm not going to purge you. Criticize me on anything. Oh, okay. I'm taking a real risk here, but they say, I want an independent union. I want to be represented in my workplace. You know, I'm sorry we patiently tried that, but... Unfortunately, the material conditions forced us by historical necessity to not allow you to do that. Sorry. And then they say, well, we fought a revolution for this. We demand control of our workplaces. We tried it. And unfortunately, despite our patience, despite our graciousness, the historically necessary material conditions forced us. Oh, uh, <laughs> whoa. This works? They actually like... It works. They believe that? You mix it with a threat. Oh. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the eggheads still fall for it, too. They think that you're on the same side as them. I don't know. Huh. It's just so hard to believe. Congratulations, Department of Fisheries. You just stepped into a much larger world. Huh. Things are going to be so much easier now. And that was a lowly bureaucrat from the Department of Fisheries moving on up in this world to the Revolutionary People's Country Club. One last thing I wanted to ask, because I think it's really an important question as well, and we get this sort of question a lot when we talk about these things, is when it comes to first steps in our lives and our communities, how can people start to engage in this process of prefiguration in the short term? What does that look like for the majority of people? And I'm sure there's no one specific answer that fits for everyone, but I'm certain that people are chomping at the bit to know the answer to this question. Yeah. It's a hard to answer question. Well, people have been asking this question in varying degrees on my videos for quite a while. And that's because it is a complicated question. And precisely as you say, there is not a one size fits all answer. I'm endeavoring to create something kind of like a roadmap, almost like a choose your own adventure way of determining the sorts of things you might want to do given your conditions. But what I will say is there are some unifying factors. In a general sense, you should locate what the primary vector of oppression is within the area you're in. Discover the hierarchy, which is the key operating ethos that keeps things in order for the power structure around you. Ask yourself, how is the power structure exploiting people in the place that you're in? And how can you bring those exploited people to want to achieve their liberation? That process may begin with something like education, a popular education campaign where you are doing teach-ins, where you are yourselves starting book clubs, where you're learning about the process so that you can teach it to other people. Finding ways to spread propaganda in a variety of ways in your local area, whether that's tabling at certain areas or just speaking with other organizers in key positions, making the connections that are necessary. Of course, what I say here is sort of an answer to people who don't have prolific state suppression. If you have prolific 
prolific state suppression, I would start smaller. I would start first with a reading group and then maybe try to do some guerrilla popular education, you know, stickering places with propaganda. Or one thing I've suggested before is putting little QR codes on things that link to radical literature and things like that. Find ways to spread a radical consciousness and to educate people. That's usually the first step if there is not already an anarchist radical consciousness in your area. If there already is, the group needs to go to work building dual power. You need to ask yourself, what is it that your group has the capacity to do? The answer is always you start with creating a consensus democracy among yourselves. Try to create this democratic structure that you want to carry to other people. But then ask yourself, what is the struggle at hand? Find the key vector of oppression in your area and then ask yourself, what would do the work of taking that apart? It may very well be an economic problem where you're at, in which case, create a cooperative. Confederate that cooperative to your council structure. You will have started a mode of economic accumulation, which could be very valuable to building power for this horizontal structure. Let's say you live in an area where a pipeline is being built through that area and they're about to poison your water table. Well, then clear some form of occupation, some concerted public action campaign, repeated direct action, and so on, are going to be very clear things to do in this process. Informing people in the area of what it's going to do to their water table becomes very important. And then building the council that will bring all of these people together to act is might be your first step. So yes, it's very conditional, but there is that sort of broad outline. You start with the process of raising consciousness and creating radical mentalities, spreading anarchist ideas to others. And then you should ask yourself how you can begin building dual power, particularly at the place where it prevents the power structure from doing its most prolific suppression. Another thing that I sort of think of is how this process is very iterative, sort of a step-by-step thing. And how in the process of building an organization, especially in the earlier steps, there's a particular emphasis on thinking about how we're going to be pulling in. So like if we're talking about doing a block committee, then we're going to be bringing in people who aren't, you know, they're not staying up late at night reading Malatesta. These are people who are, you know, going to work during the day, coming home to their family at night. And we have to make the pitch to them that it's going to benefit them to be a part of this organization. What do you think is important to emphasize in these early stages of the process in making a pitch, a mass appeal pitch on being part of these organizations that have very sort of radical political values, connecting with people from a variety of perspectives based on either their region or their job workplace and so on? Yeah, I think this is a great question because it's a question that I struggled to answer for a very long time. And the answer that I've arrived at at this point is that the most convincing thing you can do to radicalize people is a demonstration that your principles function. Okay. So that is to say, begin actually building projects which represent your viewpoint and demonstrate that they benefit from those projects, that those projects are part of their future. Like take, for example, if you go to a neighborhood and you find that it's in a food desert, one of the things that would be almost certainly the most convincing to those people that your model actually brings something important to them is to begin solving the problem of them living in a food desert, is to begin building, for example, community gardens or creating a cooperative such that the people there will have like a cooperative uh, grocery store or something of the sort, you know, actually bringing the solution to them and showing them that you actually even care about their situation instead of just coming and being like, hey, we just want to build a council. And uh, by the way, I'm an anarchist 
and you should also be an anarchist. That's not the way to approach it. But what I would say is also, insofar as we're talking about radicalizing people that are all mixed up in this process, I think that once you have started to get some buy-in, after you've, you've, you've started by building the thing that gives the demonstration of your principles, and they are beginning to buy in, they're starting to say, oh, wow, this actually, I see what you're trying to do here and I respect it. And then that's the point at which they will probably begin to become more radicalized. Maybe that's the point at which you'd want to start like a reading group of the people that are on that block and, you know, begin introducing them to the ideas that brought you to actually build this project to begin with. And after there is this connection of the real world with your ideas, it becomes less about that you are like, a, you know, a salesman and more that you are trying to demonstrate a principle of living to them. It makes me think also about people who are just setting out in politics for the first time. The suggestion of a reading group seems to me like there's a lot of benefits to trying something small like that first, where you're able to participate in a group space of co-education. Because I think also for a lot of people, this sense that they don't have all the answers makes them more afraid to act. It's almost like, oh, we need to make this big plan for how you know revolutionize the city and stuff. But each step, piece by piece, based on where you're at as an individual is a huge part of it also. So there's the location that you're in and the context there, but there's also the skills and experience that you have. And there can sometimes be a confluence between these things. When you're articulating this, Daniel, and I think it's totally correct. I was imagining this person like, I mean, that sounds good, but I am nobody, you know? And I think a lot of people feel that way. It connects also to a specificism where you don't have institutions like this that have this anarchist ethics and conscience and so on that exists, there can be a benefit also in participating in local organizations that are mass organizations to connect with other people and then move towards potting up around shared values. Because you might be able to, for example, I think of something like the Occupy movement. We're coming up on 10 years now of it. It was a place where I met a wide variety of people of different perspectives, sort of an understatement. Some of these perspectives are no longer well at places like Occupy. And back then, it was a little bit more of an open door. But that experience of meeting those people and talking to them, I'm thinking specifically of like free energy conspiracy theorists, abolish the Fed, Ron Paul libertarians. You know, this was part of the coalition that was all coming out against Wall Street at that time. And my experience is interacting with them and taking them seriously, I think, too, is an important part of it. Not taking them seriously as in not making critiques or ignoring what they have to say if they're wrong, but taking them seriously and like having that democratic process of interacting with them and hearing them out. It was something that was really valuable to me. And I feel like for a lot of people who want to do this sort of stuff with its big picture stuff, but they're worried about the first steps. I think sometimes it is appropriate to dip your toe into places where you're going to be able to meet with people who have broadly the same values as you and try to find people who you really click with on these values to start then building out to do secondary organizations like reading groups or building dual power institutions or building a specifist groups participating in the local politics and stuff like that. So yeah, like if you're intimidated by the thought of starting things or feel like you don't have the knowledge base. A lot of people struggle with the confidence to go out and do crazy shit, <laughs> to do like big projects. I guess just what I'd emphasize is that you can start small in a variety of different ways while still holding on to that ethical and conceptual basis of where you want to head. And that experience can be valuable in networking and then building on to the next steps. 
It's funny because I have kind of a similar insight from also being an Occupy. I remember feeling as if a lot of what I was doing, I wanted it to have a lot of impact. And it kind of sometimes felt like we were screaming into the void, right? It felt like we were doing action after action and the things themselves were not changing. And that was very frustrating. But what I found is 10 years out that a lot of what took place was very impactful. It shifted public consciousness in a way that really cannot be undervalued. One time I remember speaking with somebody overseas and they were talking about how they began coming to anarchist ideas because Occupy demonstrated solidarity with the movement that was taking place in their country. And so then they got interested in what was happening with Occupy and they got interested in anarchism from that. And now they are part of a much broader organization upon those values. And you don't take that into consideration while it's happening. While it's happening, you feel like you're spinning your wheels and it's only much later that you find what you've done has had a great deal of impact on the world. And I think the key, the best values that prefiguration teaches you is a sort of patience. I've described it like being a gardener, right? You need a fertile soil, so you need to remediate the soil. You need to make it ready for the seed to be planted, and then you need to germinate the seed in preparation, and then the seed must go in the ground, and then you have to tend the seed to fruition so that bad things don't happen, that it doesn't become impossible for it to grow, and then you must, through this long process, carefully and patiently tend it to its full form. And that's our job in the prefigurative praxis. It is to have that patience. It is to have that fortitude of mind to continue forth on the path, even while it seems like you were screaming into the void, when really you're watching this plant grow. You're watching this new society grow from the old. At what point during the gardening process do you take out a gun and threaten the seed? As soon as, <laughs> as, soon as they come encroaching into the plant's territory. <laughs> Well, this has been an awesome discussion. Thanks a lot for coming on the show today, Daniel. This has been really enriching. Yeah, a lot of potential routes here towards a better society, I think. So so you, you've you got a YouTube channel uh, where you do video essays on these subjects and others. Do you want to let our listeners know where they can find more of that sweet Anarch action? Yeah, my channel on YouTube is called Anarch. That's A-N-A-R-K. And uh, yeah, the videos that I produce there are videos about anarchist and libertarian socialist theory. But I also publish a lot of those scripts on Anarchist Library. The one that I mentioned in this video, Constructing the Revolution, is also published on The Commoner. I have also begun uploading them as podcasts onto Spotify. And I hope that these materials will be uh, useful to all of you. If you enjoy the work that I'm doing, I would encourage you to go over to my Patreon and become a patron for the channel so that I can keep making work like this. I love your video essays. And I think that video essays are a high artistic medium that like podcasts are too often unfairly degraded for their potential. So I think you're doing a great job. Well, thank you. I really appreciate the work you guys are doing here too. Dad, dad and uncle, my dad's twin brother, uncle, who lives with us. Can you two tell me the story of the successful world revolution? Why, yes, we can. Oh, you want to hear that one again? It's my favorite story. You know, he reminds me of us at his age when we were always asking our dad to tell the story of the failed revolution. Ah, uh, how things change. Tell me the part about patriarchy being abolished. No, wait, no, save it. That comes later. You know, you've heard this enough times. Sorry. Okay, starting at the beginning, 
Once upon a time, when your dad and your uncle were just two little boys, the people started coming together because they wanted to change society to be different from how it was, to be better from how it was. They wanted to build a revolution. So that's what they did. Wow. Yeah, it was pretty great. Very exciting. The revolution was a solidaric cooperation of all oppressed peoples to overthrow hierarchical relations. The power structures which we made were democratized and integrated. Nothing was ever put off until after the revolution. Because the revolution's an ongoing process of continually building the world we want by organizing ourselves and our institutions in accordance with our values. Sorry, it's my favorite part. Exactly. Oh, you, the kids these days, they just get it. And, you know, of course, the state fought back against the dual power structures that we developed. It was a real struggle. You know, they crushed some of us, uh, and there was some bloodshed, but others maintained themselves, and we got a foothold. The confederations that we were in held our ground, both physically holding our ground against attempts of the state to overthrow us, and also ideologically holding our ground, staying true to what we believed throughout the entire process. And people supported us because we're just feeding people. Leave us alone. Yeah. They hit us first. Self-defense. That's exactly right. The confederations just kept expanding and expanding. As we went, we integrated all these people with unique needs and created a robust unity which valued diversity and functioned upon complementarity. Over time, we started uniting entire continents together. Even confederations spanned across the oceans. All of a sudden, across the globe, we're all creating this society together that's ecologically sound, but also highly productive, utilizing less of our overall labor time while providing for more of our needs overall. It was this beautiful time of just building and building. Yeah, American philosopher Murray Bookchin in his essay Notes on Listen Marxist says that the first step a revolutionary government should take is reducing the labor needs of the workforce because they'll be able to work less, they'll like the new government more. You got it. You're so good at this. That's from the second, not Listen Marxist, but Responses to Common Responses to Listen Marxist and Post-Scarcity Anarchism, 1972. Oh, you've read that one too. It might be a footnote, actually. Let me check my notes later. The kids, they really just got it handled, this generation. So, Dad, Uncle, does that mean that people who are very interested in politics got more time just to relax and they didn't have to always worry about everything, all the things crushing down on them and they're pushing from the outside? Did they just get to spend a little more time kicking back? And Absolutely. There was a huge movement towards more rest, more relaxation. Because, after all, if we're all going to be making decisions together in this society, I know that when I'm tired, I don't make as good decisions as when I'm well-rested, when I just got back from a vacation. So if anything, people complain that there's too many vacations they're expected to take and that they want to relax less. Too many vacations, yeah. yeah. Way too many, that's they often say, yeah. Now, here we are. You know, we still got those little pockets of hierarchical world left over, but they're no longer a true threat, are they? No. I don't want to claim that this was all perfect. You know, even though we did declare patriarchy abolished, for example, the women's councils are challenging tendencies towards gendered exploitation. Yay! Even though our house is all men, our oppression is tied up in the oppression of women. So I think it's of particular importance to highlight the abolition of patriarchy as a revolutionary goal. 
The kids, they're smarter than we were. Oh, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, you know, we're never going to reach this end system where there's no problems left to be solved. That's right. It is continually new frontiers to problem solve towards. And that's a more exciting proposal than a completed solution. Because life will continue to have meaning forever. There we go. You get it. I heard it at a concert mm. on Fortnite. Fortnite still exists? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Dad. <laughs> you should check it out. That's cool as hell. Wow. I think a big benefit was defeating the robot uprising. I'm glad we foresaw that one ahead of time. Absolutely. And we didn't put it off till quote unquote after the revolution. No, had to be dealt with immediately. Wasn't the batteries thing, but. Well, you know what they say, the tools that we make to serve us could end up exploiting us or we could end up serving them. I can't remember it, sorry. It's something like that. It's about the robot uprising. People say it all the time. I can't remember. Oh, well, at least there's some quote you don't remember perfectly, you precocious little kid. You were making me feel self-conscious about my own ideological performance as a child, but you not remembering that quote helps me remember we're all just people, strengths and weaknesses. Okay. So do you all want to watch television produced in our society with good values and its wonderful art that teaches and brings us all together and entertains all at once? Yes, or we could go down to the park where all of the bands and dancers are performing. I want to go to the wildlife preserve and look at them from a safe and respectful distance. Maybe we'll do all of them. Yeah, I think another mandatory vacation's coming up anyway, so lots of time. Too many vacations. Too many, too many vacations. Vacations are the burden of the revolutionary subjects. Are you serious? Next time on Seriously Wrong, Sean and Aaron finally get to do Sean's great idea for a sketch about babies inside an old egg. The new in the shell of the old. Not an egg that's like old and rotten, not like that kind of old egg, but an egg that ages like a human. It's got wrinkles and hairs and like liver spots and stuff. That kind of old egg. So these are little babies inside an old egg breaking out the new breaking out of the shell of the old sketch they finally get to do it even though not everyone gets it but we now go to the sketch well i'm a little baby goo goo gaga little new oh, i'm so we're so new what are we inside Together, i'm a little baby the shell around us well, is so old but we're new my little baby little babies inside of old. Oh, what has the shell of an old but an old egg it's not old and rotten like an old egg has been left out it's old like wrinkled but we're not wrinkled we're new and smooth and baby like Wee. or there's wrinkles but they're new wrinkles baby wrinkles folded wrinkles of a new baby not the sagging wrinkles of an old egg because the phrase is the new in the shell of the old it's time it's time for the new to burst from the shell of the old here we go we're going going yeah woo. yay, yay. yay.
Nice crack. Oh, that's nice. Nice break. Yay. Wow. Society is completely changed now. We represent that because we're new. And that was the old society. That wrinkly, hairy old egg. It's cracked now. It's gone. Casting off the old egg. And it's really kind of, it's a funny idea for a sketch. Yay. Wow, that was really, really funny sketch, Sean. Thank you for asking me to do that with you. Thank you. That means a lot. I always had confidence in it, but that means a lot to hear.